Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try. Hello and, and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising, and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Walter Gear, Sport bike racer, track and field, all-American and seriously impressive fella, Walter is the holder of six US patents for digital ad formats, as well as many other ridiculously impressive accolades. Currently Chief Experience Design Officer at YMLYNR Health, he bridges tech storytelling, design, and user experience to create innovative design solutions to health. And to pack one more thing into this veritable sardine can of Walter's achievements, you have him to thank for skippable pre-roll ads on YouTube. Walter says, 40 under 40 and 30 under 30, I'm not impressed. Show me 40 over 40 and 50 over 50. Put a spotlight on the hard work that this group of individuals is doing while juggling life at home with a spouse and kids. That would impress me. Welcome to the show, Walter. Hey, man. Thank you. Wow. That, that was a hell of an impressive intro. <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> it's downhill from there. <laughs> it surely is, man. Uh, thank you, man. I appreciate you having me today. Great. We've got seven quick fires to warm up, Walter. So, number one, Mac or PC? Uh, Mac all day, man. PC? Come on now. <laughs> I mean, other than, no other than Dell, of course, our client. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> caveat that. Uh, number two, track or field? Oh, uh, man, that's a that's a hard one. Oh, man. Damn, I'd go with track. That's a tough one. That's a really good one. Uh, they get tougher. Uh, Silver Surfer or Black Panther? Black Panther. Lee Clow or Paul Arden? Ooh. Wow. Uh you know, I I go with Paul Arden because like his I've read plenty of his books and they're some of the most inspiring books I've ever read. And I like one of them was uh, "It's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be." I've literally kept that in my briefcase for like a year and read that almost weekly. Yeah, I've read that in the research. Right, this is a curveball. Uh, Beats, you love me campaign or fearless girl? Yeah, Beats. Oh, this now you see now you fuck me up there. Uh, so for for the listeners so so beats the beats campaign is one of my all-time favorites uh but fearless girl is uh my mentor's work so you Uh, try to throw a quick one on me uh yeah you so so i I mean i'm just gonna drink to that one (laughs) fair play fair play well played well played right two more i think these are easier so we got Jimi hendrix one now purple haze or voodoo child oh purple haze nice and lastly i don't know if you're a whiskey fan johnny walker or Derek walker (laughs) i'm gonna go go Derek. definitely (laughs) that's a good one nice one okay awesome thanks for joining us walter i appreciate you man thank you for having me 
So listen, you're, you're a veteran of the digital advertising space. You hold six US patents for digital ad formats, as I mentioned in your intro. You've worked for Google, New York Times, MySpace, many others before taking the leap agency side. But if we go right back to the beginning, what was your first ever job? And then what was your first proper creative job? Oh, man. Um, it's a t- So my first, like... I mean, I had a job as a summer counselor working with intellectually disabled uh, individuals, but um, my first job that I actually interviewed for was for a company called J&W. So J&W was uh, like a clothing store. It was where it was like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie House Party with Kid and Play years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So like it was like it was a store where you could literally get that type of shit. It would be like yellow suits, orange suits, green or purple suits, multicolored suits. And like I would I would go in there and lie daily to people. People are like, you think this looks good? I mean, it looks fucking amazing. Yes, you need to get the matching socks too. <laughs> I was just lying to people to get the upsell. And but that yeah, that was that was my first job. Oh man, that brings back memories. <laughs> nice, nice. And how old were you then when you were working there? Was this during like was, uh, were you at college or anything like that? I sick, no, no, I was uh, sixteen. I was 16. That was in Colony Center, upstate New York, in this mall. And so, like, yeah, I used to get dropped off for a while until I got a car. And and, uh, and it was like, it was like, it, I felt like I was the coolest dude, man, being able to work there. <laughs> did you did you have to wear the the apparel you sold in the store while you worked there? I did not. Thank God. <laughs> you know, I, I, I wore my own stuff, but I just felt horrible for like lying to people about these god awful suits. Uh, that they 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 were buying for like I think it was like one hundred and thirty dollars or something like that for a jacket and pants and and a matching tie and shirt. Ah, <laughs> nice. I'm really I'm always really interested. And the reason why we ask uh, this question and we ask guests to talk about the beginning of their career is because I think that it's it's far too easy, especially for young folk nowadays, to get really anxious about there being this kind of quote unquote right way to get into the industry. Oh yeah. Yeah. So how so how did that look like for you? Because I find that most people take a really scenic route and almost, you know, trip over and fall into the industry. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. I mean, like my you know, my first creative job, it's it's I guess was I mean creative was probably New York Times, right? Because that's where I really I, I was like, I was the New York Times first rich media hire ever, right? And so that's when, like, for those listening, rich media is like when you were going into, like, flash banners and the peel-away ads and expandable banners were just starting to pop up. And I think, you know, when I got there, it was interesting because I was allowed to be inquisitive and we just, like, just made random shit. And it was it was kind of cool. Um, but, like, when I was there, it was also part of the team that invented uh, sequential messaging, which at that time we called surround messaging, uh, surround us. Uh, Surround sessions. And um, those are the ads that basically like follow you everywhere you go. But, you know, throughout my career from like that was that was an interesting part of my career because it allowed me to be inquisitive around design. Right. And so before then, I had been doing like some basic HTML JavaScript, but I was just like making tables and then just putting words on pages. And so the New York Times gave the ability to really think a little more out of the box and think about like, okay, well, what could we do on this screen? And since then, my entire focus has always just been trying to follow the ball, right? Where is technology going? Um, where can I actually touch it uh, before other folks? And how can I be creating opp- or creating things that, you know, mass amount of people touch and engage with and see? So there's no right or wrong way to how you go about, you know, getting to, to you know, a C-level 
you know, creative or executive. I think you know, everyone has their, their own way of getting there. But for me, I think it was just bu- built around inquis- in- inquisitive and inquisitivity being inquisitive yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. then, uh, and then uh and just kind of bouncing around doing whatever like my whole thought was if i can be a pentathlete of the sort right and do a whole array of things you know then i'm gonna be a hell of a lot more hireable but i also earlier on in my career focused on okay but if i do this i need to go to like the most the biggest companies possible the biggest most well-known names because you know the bigger the name the easier the job the next job will be to get yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's smart. And is that something that was in your head from the off? Is that is that you know partly why you you even first applied to work at the New York Times? Yeah, I mean it, it was because I was, you know I I always kind of looked at it as I just want to go where the best like where the best people are right where the best work is and the best talent and um, you know and, and it and it and it led me to you know some really interesting places and allowed me to meet some incredible friends that I still have today individuals that inspired me to, to be better at what it is that I do because I tell people all the time like it, it's so important to be around people that are smarter than you that think different than you that look at look at a project or look at something differently than you because like in order to grow within a creative space you have to be you know a jack of all traits you have to understand a lot of things you have to be up with technology because it moves at such a rapid pace and the only way to do that is by having the right people surround you. Yeah, nice. I um I remember my my first ever agency job. In fact, it was around the same sort of time. I, I suspect where we had what was called the rich media department, and in this mm-hmm. room there was like three or four guys. No one really understood what they did, and I don't think they really understood what they did at the time either. But you mentioned about how uh, kind of exploratory and innovative it was because you were right at the front. You were kind of in this space of new tech, and I, and actually that sounds like a really exciting place to be because it was it was new enough that it hadn't then become formulaic there was no best practice because there was no even practice <laughs> is that the bit that you found really kind of interesting yeah, and, and yeah you're 100% right you're 100% right because earlier on it was like you have a screen and what could you do on it and the real estate on a on a you know on a monitor on a laptop is fucking gigantic right so and because it was such like it was a it was like the wild wild west right and so like you could do whatever it is you wanted like the more inventive the more creative it was the 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 more money you could potentially get right like you know i was you know i created one of the when i went to myspace part of my role was okay like we have to drive incremental revenue because users are falling off a fucking cliff thanks to facebook and myspace had like 55 different fucking sections of the page of the site like you did all these different things you want this you want that it's like holy shit like it was way too much right and facebook focused on one thing the activity stream done post Mm. let people see what you're doing comment etc and so it was really interesting is, you know, being at a place that is bombing, right? There's so much opportunity for growth and learning because like they were literally like, do what you want. And so, so you know, we were getting at the time, like homepage takeovers were a big deal. We were getting like $300,000 a day for a homepage takeover. I built, you know, this usability lab. And through this lab, I ended up inventing something called HD Skin. HD Skin, it was the very first time we the entire industry started using video as a background for an entire you know page so i kind of did this i did this i did an ad for it was like the facebook movie i forgot the name of it and that facebook movie ended up running on myspace's homepage, and we ended up getting like a million dollars for it so i I created a format that took our takeovers from three hundred thousand dollars a day to a million dollars a day uh off a whim because our ceo was just like do whatever i don't really care at the time no one would put a gigantic fucking video 
behind the entire page of your homepage, let alone like MySpace running a Facebook movie ad, which ended up getting a, getting a ton of press and, and, and laughs and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it's like, it was different then because now innovation, because your mobile devices are so small and the real estate is so small, innovation now is about the use of data, right? And how you manipulate that data to understand who an individual is and then deliver something that's highly relevant. Whereas 15, 20 years ago, it was, how can I get the most intrusive shit as big as possible in front of someone to get them to potentially tap on it, right? So it's it's most certainly changed. And, and so it, it sounds like that's the, that's the bit you've followed then ever since that time at the New York Times. Because I think it would be an easy mistake for someone to make to think, I've started it at New York Times, got this role I love, but I'm at New York Times, therefore my next gig needs to be in a similar kind of publishing media type space. But actually it was the tech and the innovative use of technology, which was the thread. It was, it was, it was, and it was, it was, you know, I was always just interested in, in like how you can actually engage consumers in really impactful, interesting ways. Um, and again, I, I, I like to always say too, like some of the best creatives I worked with in my career are people that are just inquisitive. I think that makes an incredible creative, someone who's just constantly thinking about what's new, what's the big thing, and understanding the lay of the land and who want, launched what app and who's doing what. I mean, that's that's what makes someone incredible at, at a creative role, right? Because they're able to take those ideas, bring them together, and create you know incredible solutions for uh, their brands. Your your first few roles that you took then, you've mentioned MySpace as well. Was it was it all uh, client side, that kind of brand side roles? Because I know you at some stage you switched to agency side. Yeah, they were they were like publisher slash ad tech companies. And I think the reason why is because my thought at the time was if I can build it or if I can come up with all these different ideas, then I can actually you know, have all these different brands and all these people, you know, run it and whatnot. And it wasn't necessarily the case. See, ad tech is cool because you get to do the coolest shit before everyone else does it. But the problem is you're the last on the RF, like last person to get the RFP, right? So the RFP goes to the agency. Agency starts thinking about the big idea. Then the, then the RFP goes over to the media agency. Media agency starts thinking about where they're going to run it. And then media agency, in some cases, will tap into the creative agency to understand what it is we're working on, campaign, get assets. And then they're doing basic shit. And then as they're deciding for platforms, you got this third you third party, you know, ad tech company who says, hey, hey, what about me? Can I actually, you know, you could actually run this. Let's do this cool ad. And then media agency says, well, ideas already built. This is what we're doing. If you can take these assets and make them fit into what you're doing, then cool. Right. And so it's like, you. so I've started to realize, yeah, this is cool making all this shit, but like, I'm at the tail end of every fucking thing. So I just felt like I wasn't really influencing the work um, that, that these brands were doing. So, um, you know, for me, I had an incredible opportunity to go over to TBWA and work with, you know, uh, John Jonathan Isaacs, who's our chief creative officer. And, you know, he brought me into a role there. And it was really eye-opening, right? Because, like, I've never done health. I kind of was in a point in my career where I felt I've done literally everything I could in terms of innovation on, on these devices and on these screens. And, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to work in health. And a gentleman, a good friend of mine, Brian Gaffin, brought me in there. And, um, you know, it was – it at first, I didn't think I could do it, right? I was like, well, health, let me see. It might be interesting. We'll give it a shot. But it gave me an opportunity to get into the agency world – and understand how agencies work. And then I ended up realizing, well, shit, this is actually really interesting stuff because while I was doing, you know, putting asses in 
seats at movies or putting feet in sneakers and, you know, people in cars like that really wasn't making a difference. But, you know, working on campaigns around like, you know, different types of cancer and and, and, and fibroids and, and all this stuff was wildly interesting to me because I actually realized it was making a real impact on people's lives and, and, and whatnot. So that that is kind of how I got in to the agency space, you know, being there for a year and a half, you know, I got, I started talking to VML YNR and they gave me the opportunity to really come over here to larger role and not only do health, but do a lot of non-health stuff too. So being able to work on brands like Coca-Cola and Ford and New Balance has just been really exciting. So I get really the best of both worlds when I'm here, the opportunity to do the inventive stuff with some of the biggest brands, most well-known and iconic brands in the world, but also you know, being able to do work uh, for for farmer brands that are making a real impact. I mean, you know, Pfizer is one of our clients, and we launched Comernity. I mean, how how many people can actually say they work with a brand to save the world? Yeah, 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 yeah. There's two observations there that I've made, and one is that kind of observation that you said you were like the last to get on get the RFP, and so I suppose that going agency agency side, in effect, you you're, you're moving up the food chain, if you like. Right. You, you're you're yeah, getting exactly. to you know eat that problem sooner, but also. One of the, I think, criticisms quite fairly of people in our industry, if I you know, talk really broadly about it, is we can take ourselves far too seriously in general. And one of the retorts that you often hear is you're just doing advertising or you're just doing mm-hmm. marketing. You're not saving lives here. You're not curing cancer. But of course, yeah. actually, that sidestep into health from agency to health, I suppose, <laughs> you, you literally are involved in, oh, yeah. in, in that. So there must be so much more must be so much more rewarding and, and actually very different to a, probably a lot of our listeners' experiences of working in agencies. Oh, yeah. It's so different, man. It's, um, you know, it is, it, I can't even explain the feeling because, you know, I've been in this space for like 23 years now and I feel like I've done some cool shit, but like the work that I'm doing now, I think, think is just the type of work that's making a real impact. And I don't know that people really look at health in that manner. And I think the reason why is because for so long, health was like looked at as like the place where people go and die, right? You go and die, you go and retire here in that space and that they're like 10 years behind everyone. But in fact, the pandemic pushed farmers companies like it's like a such a, you know, pace that not to say that they're on par with some of these other companies out, out, that are out, but like they're pretty fucking close. And if you start to look at like, again, like the most popular, most well-known brand in the fucking world today it's a it's a pharma client. It's a pharma company. Excuse me. You know Pfizer. So you know, I think things have shifted, and I think that you know one thing the pandemic has also showed us is that health space is actually the safest space to be, right? In terms of employment and whatnot, and and people don't get that they also pay a shit ton too. So uh, you know it's it's a it's a good place to be for for people that really want to make a true impact. Yeah. So you're the agency's first chief experience design officer. I, I, you know, I don't want to get too bogged down in titles because I think that it can be that can easily happen in our industry. But what does that? What does a chief experience design officer actually do? So we have we have the role here within the agency, you know. But but for the health space, sorry about the noise in the background. For the health space, this was the first chief experience designer, like role, yeah. right? Chief experience designer. And um, so it's it's interesting. I think that my role is is interesting because. You know, when we look at the health space, I think that so often we just look at like the the 
you know, in anyone, you talk about health and what do people think? Oh, it's the, the ads we see on TV late at night. And it's like, there you got like 45 minutes worth of shit that tells you all the wrong stuff that's going to actually happen. If you actually take this pill that's supposed to make you better, right? Like you're going to shit, you're going to go to da, 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 you're going to die and you're going to, it's like crazy. Right. Um, and so I think that for so long, it was like this focus on, you know, just the sites or just these commercials and realize that, you know, to, to, get an individual engaged, right, and to inspire an individual, um, it takes a hell of a lot more than that. It takes understanding who they are, what they do, where they go. You, you, you know, it takes creating these consumer journeys, not only consumer journeys, but HCP journeys. HCP is healthcare provider and or doctor, right? So it's taking a look at these different journeys, seeing where they intersect and understanding that, you know, engaging them means a multitude of platforms have to be used, right? So, you know, it's thinking beyond the more traditional stuff that we've done and start to think about, well, how do we activate across social? How do we actually inspire and educate through AR and VR? How do we actually bring individuals together uh, by way of wearables, which wearables is becoming just a, a wildly, you know, successful and, in, 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 you know, space to be in. And when you start to even look at some of the largest companies in the world, look at Amazon and, you know, all these companies that are literally getting into health, Apple, Google, like all these devices track health, right? Mm. So there's a reason for that, right? Because I think that, you, you know, we're understanding that, you know, like what we do now is it's so important to understand more about who we are, understanding, you know, our health in real time, like all that information. So doing that means, you know, creating experiences um, that really drive and entice people, right? And I think that now, you know, in my role, you know, my partner is a chief creative officer, um, Oj, and, and that's her name. And, and, you know, while she's incredible, like she understands that, you know, she as a copywriter, she feels like, well, my partner shouldn't be an art, you know, director, which is a common, you know, put art, art with copy. She's like, my, you know, partner should be a technologist, right? And while I'm, yes, I'm a technologist, I'm actually an individual that understands just how to actually drive engagement, right, in a multitude of ways. And so together, what we're able to do really is, is sit, understand a problem that a client has, and then really think thoroughly through how to actually reach them in a way that actually is magical, memorable. Yeah, well said. There's there's so much, and, and you hinted earlier about the, 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 the big opportunity at the time and even so arguably now today is, is obviously data. I think um, since you left New York Times and the idea of ads following you around, they've become so intrusive that it's led to this kind of mass uh, ad blocker installation worldwide. I can't remember the figures, but I know it's approaching three, 400 million. Do you find yourself with a kind of moral obligation at all when you're dealing with wearable devices that track so many personal health uh, details. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. I think that people have to get comfortable with the use of their data and understand more um, about what is being done with their data. And I don't think that there is enough transparency when it comes to that, right? And, yeah. and quite frankly, I think a lot of it is also difficult for a lot of people to understand, right? So so you know we look at you know we you know we look at autonomous vehicles, right? I'll give you this example, Tesla, right? The thing that Tesla does so great is that that is a vehicle that can literally drive itself. Okay, like you you put in your address, you press a button on the steering wheel, you let it go, and it will stop at stop signs, it'll stop at red lights, it'll take a left turn, right turn, it'll, like the whole nine yards. It'll get from point A to point B without doing anything. Now, now 
people are not comfortable with that yet. I mean, there's people who have it, but like there's a lot of the world is not ready for that. In theory, right, what they have done an incredible job at is slowly integrating technology and ways to get you to kind of get there without pushing it all on you at one time. So here's here's how. If you look at the, the 2022 Model S and the Model X, right, the steering wheel is now like a Formula One race car wheel. It's half the size of a regular steering wheel, right? doesn't do that big circle. It's like a little small rectangle, right? So they're slowly eliminating the steering wheel. If you look behind the steering wheel, you would where you would literally where you would typically see stalks, you know, to turn the turn signals and whatnot and forward and backwards. Well, there's no stalks there anymore, right? They're entirely gone. So what it does is it uses it uses um AI and looks through the cameras and will recognize whether you need to go forward or backwards based off where you're parked. You can also slide it forward or backwards on the screen to the right of you. Okay, so now they're eliminating the stalks. So there, it's like there's there's slowly you, oh, when you get into the car. By the way, you just put your foot on the brake, and then the car door automatically closes. Or when you walk up to the car, it recognizes your mobile device, and the car door automatically opens. Right. So they're slowly, slowly eliminating things. Right from from me, and then eventually will get you comfortable with the fact that I will go and sit in this car, and there will be no steering wheel. I will go and sit in this car, and there will be the, so so. You know, my point and why I say that is because I think that as an industry, we need to be, you know, more transparent with what it is that we're doing, right? But also slowly walk them through this, walk, you know, hold their hand through because if we dump it all on them at one time, it's just going to be way too much. Yeah, yeah, I like that point. I, I also like um, in, in the research, there was an interview that you gave to, I think, Med Ad News, where, mm-hmm. and, and apologies, this might sound like a more trivial That's example, fine. but it really, when I read it, it seems so so obvious why chat boxes typically feel so alien and, and, and I'm so uncomfortable with them. And I think you the point you made was that the trouble with a lot of chat boxes online is you get an immediate answer. So it completely, it immediately doesn't feel human because a human would consider for a few seconds and then re- respond. But even that timing and making something feel more human is going to make it feel more natural and you're immediately going to be more comfortable with that tech. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and this is, the you know, that is a great example of just thinking through like how you actually enter, how a brand enters an individual's life. Right. Because if it's done in a way that starts to feel more natural, more authentic, right, then you're more likely to engage with that brand. Right. Because to your point, like when that like when they when you type something and automatically shoot you back an answer, it feels like, oh, gosh, it's like definitely this computer. Right. But if that that subtle pause that wait, you see the dot, 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 and it makes it look like someone's typing, that makes it yeah. feel like, OK, I, I might be interacting with a human. I feel a little more comfortable now. Yeah, yeah, completely. I also liked in the same interview, by the way, there was a, I was having images of, uh, of penguins. This might sound a bit rogue, but I don't know if you've ever seen penguins when they, when they need to test if there's a killer whale in the water and they all gang up on each other and push one in to check. And the line you use about tech in the industry is that everyone's in a race to be second. Like that second penguin is able to jump in. And it makes so much sense because, again, you don't want to implement new tech when we are talking about literally lives at stake. So, like, how does that differ to how maybe your, your, your experience with MySpace, New York Times and elsewhere, where you're literally pioneering and you're at the forefront, and yet the, the stakes are so much more significant that you do want to be that second penguin, to use yeah. my terrible metaphor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, and damn, you've done your research. Holy shit. So, so um, here's the thing, man. I think it's, it's interesting because 
everyone wants to be to, to the quote I said earlier, every everyone wants to be first, right? But there's this fear um, in health. It's interesting because to your point, like no one wants to make a big mistake. So I think that my job and the job of our the, the agency is really how do we actually inspire them to make that move by, by essentially by showing them uh, that it can be impactful, by showing them that it can be effective. Uh, I think part of that is in how we present the work and how we actually then hold their hand through that process. Now, the difference mm-hmm. is that you know, on the health side, yes, it's going to take longer because when you're doing something that's drastically new, right, you have now a full legal team on their side who's involved to in, in, in you know, assessing the work and making sure it's right and making say, sure you're saying the right things and doing the right things. So that then, you know, holds up the process quite a bit. Right. Whereas, mm. you know, other companies, qu- quite frankly, are more than willing to jump in because like for them, it's like, hey, it's, it's not a big deal. You know, we, we, we screw up then OK, we'll get back to it. I think that more brands need to understand that, you know, screwing up is OK, but like you don't have to go and create something and do it at mass scale. Right. It's it's test in small groups, see if they actually work well, see how people, you know, react to it and then build based off that experience and or kill it. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles, at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod listing companies did just that, calling for guidance on research and brand positioning. But we're definitely not asking you to do that. Anyway, back to the show. I call it the golden circle. Yeah, golden shower, more like. You don't want Simon Sinek. You want a proper marketing chat, don't you? Hang on. I um, I, I would oh, normally wait a minute before jumping into listener questions, but we've got a friend of the show who's actually snuck an extra one in. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go to listener questions now. Right. With you, Walter. Go for it, man. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So great friend of Walter's and great friend of, of the show, Derek Walker. Uh, Derek's, uh, Derek asks, you've mentioned sending the elevator back down. Why is that so important? And why do you think more people don't embrace this thought? That's a good question. I think, I think people are... S- Many people are essentially stuck in their own worlds. And when I say stuck in their own worlds, I mean uh, they get to the top and have this feeling of, hey, you know what? I'm good, right? I'm good. I've made it. I've got this nice fancy car outside and this fancy house and my pool in the backyard. I don't have to do shit now, right? So it's a very selfish way of thinking and, and whatever to each their own, right? Everyone has their reasons. But I think that because of that, you know, we have grown into this society where like people are just like, they just, it's, it's, I don't know if I want to call it greed, but just, you know, people just kind of get caught up in their own worlds and doing their own thing. I, I think that, you know, we're in this time now where we all talk about diversity and the importance of diversity. And I don't know that many people are doing a lot. And, and when I say like many people, I mean, people of all walks of life and people of all colors, right? Because not all skin folk are kin folk, right? But, you know, I, it, I say all the time that like, when I say send the elevator back down, like, helping someone else or creating opportunity for someone else doesn't cost you anything, right? Like, like a 10 to 15 minute conversation 
can make a, a, a drastic impact on someone's career. And I think it's important because, you know, we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to this society. We owe it to this world. We owe it to this space that we work in called advertising to make it better. And the only way we make it better is by ensuring that we are pulling up uh, the right people to do some of this work. And when I say the right people, you know, I mean ensuring that we have a, a multitude of, um, you know, ethnicities, genders, you know, sexual preference, like all of that, right? There should be, a, you know, disabilities, which we often don't talk about as well um, when, we, when it comes to diversity or DEI. You know, mm. it's just important that we create a table that looks like the rest of the world and society to ensure that we are, you know, just leaving this place in, in a better space. We have to understand, you know, we are, we are, and I say this all the time, we're a, a dot on a timeline that is potentially infinite. So our time here, 70, 80, 90, 100 years is fucking nothing. It's here today and gone tomorrow. So, you know, for me, I, what I look at is, you know, how do I leave, you know, what is my legacy when I'm gone? Like, what do I leave behind? And it's not the job I had. And it's not like how much money I made or the shit that I bought, because that can all be gone in an instance. It's how many people you actually made an impact on, how many, you know, individuals you've helped. Because helping one person, you help more than just one person. You help a family. You help multitude of people in that person's life. It's terrifying when you when you mention about it just being a dot on an infinite timeline. But then I suppose it's also, it's also inspirational, right? Because how impactful do you want that dot to be? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so true. But, like, you know, the things that we do, the smallest things that we do can make a ripple effect. Yeah. You know, yeah, a yeah, massive sure. ripple effect. Uh, Derek's other question that he snuck in uh, was, uh, what was your biggest aha moment about the differences between how pharma agencies work and general marketing agencies? So I, I accept that we've kind of touched on a few points already, but is there anything else that you can uh, you can add? Um, no, you know, it's interesting. When I first got in, like, there were so many different words. I'm still learning today, like three and a half years in, but like there's so many different terms and things and, and words used that I had no idea about. Like they call like a conference, they call a Congress, right? So it's just weird. So it's, it's, I'm like, all right, whatever, whatever works. It's weird to me. But I think that, you know, when, when thinking about pharma, I never thought about the, the like how many people you're trying to reach, right? So when you're thinking like traditional advertising, let's call it whatever, like Dell or Coca-Cola, whatnot, like you're, most cases you're, 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 you're trying to reach a consumer or unless you're doing like B2B, right? But like on the health side, it's like you're trying to reach a consumer also known as a patient. You're also trying to communicate with HCP, also known as a doctor. You're also trying to communicate with a caregiver, right? So like you never, I've never really gave so much thought to this. I thought it was just like, oh, you just sell some drugs and that's what it is. It's, it's so much more than that. It's really understanding these individuals' lives and understanding when the right moment to reach them is because you know, we start to, you know, in most cases, most brands will work on a consumer journey and that journey will be like, hey, you, they wake up and they do this first and then they go here and they commute to work and this is where they like to work out at the gym. This is where they like to eat. This is what they like to shop and buy. But that changes drastically when you're talking about, you know, an individual who's on a potential medication. So if we take, for instance, yeah. say cancer, right, like the, how I reach them, the, the, the week they get diagnosed or the month that they were diagnosed with cancer is going to be wildly different from how I reach them the first time they get chemo, which is going to be wildly different from the first time I reach them when they've come off tamoxifen, which is a drug you take for four to five years that helps prevent the cancer from coming back. Yeah. And once you stop taking that, there's that like 
like, oh my gosh, like, am I going to be okay? Because I stopped taking this yeah. four to five years. I might've messed up how much, how much time that is. But, um, so like how you, like, there's an entirely different person at those three stages mm. in terms of how they're looking at life and then how the brand then continue to have a conversation with them. So in pharma, like I, it made me realize that like how you communicate is like this ever long, everlasting kind of, you know, communication where their their mood their temper what they do all of that changes and you have to be hypersensitive to that more so than any other traditional brand yeah 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 absolutely right um our last listener uh, has asked to remain anonymous and she says i work for a healthcare agency in australia looking ahead should i worry that this is perhaps too niche to join a non-healthcare agency in the future. And you made an interesting point earlier, Walter, about the context of the pandemic has actually kind of heightened the significance of the the pharma space. Yeah, so this is a really common question. I think it's, I think it's, it's a really good question. It's easy to get stuck in any space, right? If you're, if, if, if you're, you know, if you continuously work on CPG brands, it's it's easy to get stuck in on on CPG brands as opposed to others. So like, you know, with pharma, yes, I will say that once you get in, if you're in there for a while, it will most certainly be a little more difficult to, uh, to hop out of health, right? Because most folks will look at you and say, hey, you know, you know, you don't get this space, you don't get entertainment or whatnot, or fashion or whatnot. So I think it will be a little hard. But I think that the nice thing is, you know, there are agencies like ours where our teams are working on health stuff, but they're also working on non-health stuff. That's what attracted me to come here, right? It allowed me to work on things like Coca-Cola one day, and then the next day work on, you know, Genentech or, 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 you know, AstraZeneca or Pfizer. So there are other opportunities out there like that. I would say look for some of those, mm-hmm. but also don't be afraid to get in because if it's something that you enjoy and something that you love, like make it happen, make it work, right? But I always tell people, go after the shit that makes you feel inspired go after this shit that that allows you to wake up every day and get excited and sometimes it takes a long time to actually find that yeah yeah for sure for sure well said uh so the final part of the interview then walter is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests they start with what advice would you give to your younger self the advice i'd give to my younger self would probably be um i mean honestly just be yourself be yourself and show up. I think, you know, we all like I, I, you know, we all get to where we are based on who we were at one point, things we did, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm, excuse me, I'm happy with what I've, what I've achieved. And I'm most certainly happy about where I've come. So I don't think that I would change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that if I was, to, if I was able to understand earlier, the power of, of being you, I think that um, I could have probably accomplished a lot more earlier. And I think a lot of people have that issue. It's like it's it's hard to show up in spaces um, and be your natural self. I think it gets easier the older you get and, you know, the more senior you become in your role, because, of course, with both of those comes more confidence. Um, but I think if you could do that from an earlier age, I think that, you know, the work you're able to you know put out will be tremendous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it, that retrospectively you just wish was uh, was was more apparent early on. But I think it's one of those catch twenty twos where it just can't possibly happen that way. But I, I certainly yeah. echo oh, yeah. that. I certainly echo that. Oh yeah. Uh, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? <laughs> uh, it would be. It would. Oh man, that's a hard question. <laughs> if I could banish one thing. 
I mean, geez, I'd probably say, I mean, look, I'll be honest, timesheets, they fucking suck. Like I was doing timesheets <laughs> for like 40, 40 minutes before I got on this call with you. Um, timesheets, man, it is. The, then I get that like from the agency side, it is, you know, you're everyone has to be billable. It's about like, OK, great, like charging, charging the clients with hours worked. But it's just like I hate that business model. It's it's the worst. And like I spend more time doing you know my timesheets than than a lot of meetings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just, it's literally like checking in and out. Like you know, like Ford and GM. You know, walk in, stamp your timesheet, and stamp you know stamp it when you leave. Yeah, it's 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 annoying. <laughs> I'm sure everyone would agree to that. Yeah, no, it kind of is. It's not. It hasn't actually come up on the pod before, but I have spoken about it in in numerous episodes. But then <laughs> I've, uh, I've, uh, I think I've got skin in the game here because I regularly give talks about pricing creativity and how units of time is a massive flaw of thinking about it. But that said, in the defense yeah. of timesheets, you're managing the cost, not the value you're, you know, trying to generate. So yeah. I kind of see oh, yeah. it from both yeah. sides. I don't know. <laughs> Number three, are there any books that you can recommend to our listeners? This can be, you know, this can be industry based or it can be fiction, anything that that you think people more people should read. So the one to be honest with you, the one I actually mentioned earlier was a was one that I always recommend. It's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be. It's just one of my favorites. But I'll actually I'll do a I'll do a plug. Right. So uh there's one called uh What Lucy Taught Us. And it's about essentially improving your 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 business like by way of process and the process and your approach. It's actually written by my father. Ah, <laughs> cool. this, uh, so so if you look up Walter Gear, uh, you'll you'll see that Walter Gear Jr. Yeah, but it's it's a it's a it's a good book on on process and he's a project. He spent his latter portion of his career. Uh, as, as a project manager, the first portion as an engineer working for companies like uh, Duracell and GE. Uh, but it's a good book on, on understanding process and better, you know, how to, how to kind of move your projects forward. Ah, wicked. Nice. nice. Nice, nice, Well, we'll definitely link to that in this episode for sure. Appreciate it. And then, and then number four then is, is we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honor, depending on your point of view to our guest who has to give the reason why. So would you kindly dedicate this episode to someone? You know what I'll say? I'll, I'll, I'll give this to my wife because to be honest with you, with, with, with what I do and what we all do in this space, it is like this shit is so time consuming and then this is the constant on the run. And, you know, I think that our spouses oftentimes will get the shit end of the stick right? because of the time that we spend doing this stuff. And, you know, it, I'm able to do stuff that I really genuinely love. And I genuinely could, could honestly say that I couldn't do it without uh, having her support and, and having someone who's consistently in my corner and there for like the the good times as well as the bad. So that's what I'd, I'd have to say. So I def- definitely dedicate this to my wife, Talise Gear. Awesome. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated to Talise Gear. So as a final call to action, everyone can head over to the listing. There'll be links there to everything from Paul Arden's It's Not How Good You Are, It's How Good You Want To Be, to What Lucy Taught Us. I'm definitely going to check that out because it's not come up before. How else can our listeners get more water gear? I mean, yeah, I mean, any social platform, it's uh, at Third Gears, 3-R-D-G-E-E-R-S. At Third Gears. Great. Well, we'll make sure that link's in there as well. But listen, Walter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this has been a blast. Uh, this has been amazing. I really appreciate the conversation. This has been good. So let's put it out there. Yeah, we will. Thank you for having me, man.
And uh, thank you. And, and finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. We massively value the support. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or just email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.